0: The Optimal Life.
1: Andy, how are you today? Hey, it's good to be here, Nate. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, define covert CIA officer. What is the covert? What does that mean exactly?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize this, but uh, but CIA is a huge organization and only about 10% of the entire organization is actually undercover. The other ninety percent is overt, meaning they tell mom and dad they work at CIA and they drive into CIA and their tax record says CIA. There's only about ten percent of us that ever go undercover and live a covert life, where we work for someone else and we don't get to tell our mom and dad what we do for a living and we lie to
0: our kids and our and our spouses. Wow! And you did this for how many years?
1: Yeah, we did this. I did this for seven years, uh, and I actually met my wife. was also a covert officer so I was one of those lucky guys that had a spouse who knew what I did uh, but we still couldn't really talk about operations together too much
0: so let me uh, if I understand this you uh, how does this process work because when I was a kid I always wanted to go to the FBI maybe the CIA it'd be it was like a dream like a fantasy job fantasy career and go get the bad guys and go after all these people <laughs> and uh, and I know that the FBI process is quite complex and I would assume the CIA is probably even more so more burdensome and more complex so if you could just generally speak and take us through the, the process how you, you how do you, how does one apply to become a CIA of yeah, that.
1: absolutely. So it is, a, it is a complicated process. And uh, I've actually had friends who went from CIA to FBI, and I've had other friends who have started in FBI and then ultimately transitioned to CIA. So a little bit of insight into both different processes. But CIA, um, there's a lot that's classified about their their interview process. But what we can talk about is that they they find people from all walks of life. There's There's because like I said, 90% of what they do is not covert. You'll find CIA at job fairs at college university campuses, man. You'll find CIA at job fairs in Chicago and Atlanta, just the the same generic job fair that you would find, you know, Siemens uh, food group or trucking jobs or whatever else, like you'll see a, a CIA rep there for major cities. And then they've got a large online portal where people can literally go to CIA.gov and apply online for any number of jobs, including covert jobs. Uh, But it's obviously very tricky to pick someone for a covert job when they've applied online. It leaves a little bit of a trail. And then there's people like my wife and I who get intercepted from whatever our life was before. So I was actually transitioning out of the Air Force and trying to go into the Peace Corps and my record was somehow fell on someone's desk or triggered some kind of automatic uh, automatic HR bulletin or something and I ended up getting uh, an email or a, a, like a warning uh, page during my Peace Corps application that came through and said that I might qualify for other jobs and then I just got a phone call and that's how a number of covert officers come in they come in through a, a tap on the shoulder or some kind of uh, letter in the mail or uh yeah or just a phone call from an unlisted number
0: that's incredible. Thank you for your service by the way serving the military no, I appreciate uh, it man yeah so so they they basically say hey we have an we have an opportunity for you to become a quote unquote spy i mean that's basically <laughs> what they're saying to you like, take us back to that time, moment in time, what are your thoughts, your feelings, uh, how does that all evolve?
1: Yeah, no, it, it's not It's not quite that awesome. Uh, it's, it's actually more like you get a phone call from an unlisted number that says, hey, you'd be interesting for this thing that the government is doing, and we'd like to invite you to come up, but we can't tell you any details, would you be interested? And it sounds like a scam. It sounds like the scammiest scam you could imagine, brother. Uh, But, you know, they don't ask for anything. They don't ask for anything except for uh, a mailing address that they can send you airplane tickets. So for me, when I got that phone call, I was like, whatever, man. Yeah, sure. Here's my, you know, crappy apartment where I'm living right now in Montana. Go ahead and, you know, send me me your airplane tickets. I believe this is going to happen. Like, (laughs) I believe pigs are going to fly. And then the airplane tickets show up. Right? And then, you're, then you get on the airplane and you get off on the other side and all you have is like the next step. Here's an address where we have a hotel reservation and a, res- a hotel reservation number. And then you go and you go to the hotel and the reservation is valid. It's literally like that until the point comes where you get you know, a, a, an address and you go to a front desk and you tell somebody at the desk, my name is Andrea Bustamante and I'm here for an interview and somehow the person at the desk understands. And that's when all the cipher locked doors and all of the super secret stuff starts. Um, Up until then, all you really know is you're being interviewed for a government role in national security. And you have no
0: idea what else, that's it. There's no detail. That's it,
1: there's no detail. There's no detail because they can't can't share those details on unsecured channels. They can't tell you over the phone or in an email because you don't have any secure channel. Right. It's not like they're gonna send you a signal message that says, hey, we're gonna hire you for CIA. You gotta walk into a controlled space and then have an interviewer say, we're considering you for a role as a covert operative with CIA. Would you be interested in continuing this interview process? So then what happened for you? I mean, the same thing that happens to, I would imagine almost everybody that gets to that place. You start having fantasies that you're gonna shoot guns and drive Lamborghinis and wear custom made suits and you say, yes, you stumble over yourself You know, trying to not say yes too fast. (laughs) Right. And then, and 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 that's when the interview process starts.
0: Once you, once you say yes, and they get you all hooked up. So you go back home, right? And now you're working as a CIA agent, you're covert, you're undercover. And so at that time, like, does life start changing? Uh, I'm just trying to understand like the practicality of everything.
1: It's not, yeah, it's not very practical, which is really funny. So from the time that you say yes at the end of the first interview, then, then technically you are not yet hired, but you are also under obligations from the U.S. government not to disclose that you're talking to CIA. So you're in this catch-22. You can't say that you have a job. You, you aren't getting paid. You still have like nine more months of interviews ahead of you. So you still have to work your day job, whatever your day job is, whether that's military or, or a barista in a coffee shop or a manufacturing plant, whatever it might be. But, you know, you can't share with anybody this cool, exciting thing that's developing in your life. And at the same time, yeah, and at the same time, every time uh, you move through another set of interviews or the psych exam or the polygraph or whatever else you're doing, there the CIA is asking you to further distance yourself from your previous life. So, but they're not giving you you know guidance or resources or training on how to do that. So essentially, everybody in your personal sphere just starts to think that you're like a jerk. you're just you're going hermit on them and you're shutting down and you're going ghost. Um,
0: right, because I would and, imagine, andy, your your buddies that you were hanging out with at that time, and maybe some air force friends, whatever, all of a sudden, you're kind of standoffish. They all think that you've that you want nothing to do with them. you're too good for them. Right. Little do they know what you're going through. That had to be really challenging.
1: Yeah, it was really challenging. Um, it was really challenging in a way, but the other side of this, Nate, is that you realize, in hindsight, that the CIA is also, the interviews are hiring people who have no problem leaving behind friends. And that's very much kind of the, the person that I was too. I, I had friends in high school and friends in college, and when the time came that it was time to move on to the next thing, you know, I was always the guy who was like, hey, dude, it's been fun. High five. I'll see you, you know, sometime in the
0: future. So your personality type fit what they were looking for.
1: Yeah, exactly. And then I came to find out as I met more people there that they had the same personality type. And it's, it's critical because you might, work, you might work for two years on an operation with two or three other officers in really close proximity. And then after those two or three years are over, you have no reason to continue talking to each other. Right? So you have to let that relationship go and move on to the next operation. And if you're the kind of person that has a need for long-term relationships, it can become very difficult to do that professionally.
0: What are some of the characteristics? You say people that are able to disconnect from their prior lives, disconnect from their friends. That's definitely a characteristic. What are some of the other main characteristics that people look for to bring in somebody into the CIA? Yeah, there's
1: a certain, there's a a specific phrase that we talk about a lot inside that's called moral flexibility, Um, and that's exactly what it sounds like, Nate, like you have to basically have a flexible version of ethics and morals to do the work. Um, What you teach your kids isn't necessarily the same thing that you're doing in the office and then you're sitting with scumbags. I mean, you're, you're stealing secrets from traders. These are not good people. These are people who were trusted with secrets, and now they are giving their secrets to you in exchange for money or prostitutes or drugs or whatever else. So in order to deal with those people, you have to you know, live life on their terms to a certain extent. Um, and there's a moral flexibility where you have to be able to do that and still sleep at night and still go to church on Sunday and still you know feel comfortable coming in and and using taxpayer dollars to you know buy bricks of gold for dictators and third world countries and be okay mm. with it
0: so is that where your focus was were you I don't know how much you're able to share but CIA focuses on foreign
1: intelligence um, foreign which is all intelligence. intelligence from outside of the United States it's very different than FBI FBI focuses on law enforcement of US laws so FBI is inside U.S. and CIA operates mainly outside of the U.S. But yeah, once you kind of understand that that difference, then anybody who has access to secrets that would help the U.S. government secure U.S. persons is a potential target, whether that's a billionaire in China or a terrorist for uh, for ISIS, or whether that's like a you know, a general in Colombia working for the FARC. It really doesn't matter. If they've got access to secrets that could keep Americans safe, then they fall on our target list.
0: An example with, uh, again, as much as you're able to share, when you go and you sit down and meet with these guys, how do you even penetrate to get the initial meeting? And how does that, how do they, because I'm sure that they understand, hey, there's a lot of intelligence officers throughout the world that are trying to capture us or, you know, put us into a corner. So how do these guys even feel comfortable with you at the beginning?
1: Yeah, so they don't, um, being undercover means nobody knows you're an intelligence officer, right? So that's a huge advantage that you have. And we put a lot of time and training at CIA into how to master being undercover. And being undercover doesn't mean that you are like some high profile, super rich business person or celebrity like you see in James Bond. In reality, being undercover means that you are the most forgettable, unidentifiable unremarkable gray person anyone has ever met so there's advantages to being that person first it's when you talk to somebody who's interesting they never think that you're more interesting than they are so they never see you as a threat it's your if you watch survivor on tv survivor is all about never being seen as a threat it's the same way in the real world as soon as somebody thinks that you might be a threat to their success their wealth their ambition they stop talking to you but when you're like a boring you know, printer repair man and you just like to drink the same drink they like to drink and you happen to be able to get them you know, great tickets to front row sporting events, now all of a sudden you're just a cool friend and they wanna hang out with you. And that's how you get access to anybody. That's how you get access to people in your everyday life, Nate. And that's the same way that we get access to the most sensitive people in the world. We just find the thing that they want and we present them a way to get that thing without looking like a threat Uh, and then we cultivate the relationship very intentionally from there to get to the place where they're giving us secrets in exchange for the thing that they want the most
0: what was your something that you focused on throughout your years there give us an example if you could yeah so first penetrated and then how it evolved uh, so i was a specialist in asia
1: Um, And it's funny if you if you ever get a chance to look at my homepage or check me out online. I'm just a brown kid from Pennsylvania. Like I'm I'm ambiguously brown. I'm Mexican. I've got crazy big hair right now. Uh, There's nothing really remarkable about me. Um, But because I was brown and because I was Latin American and because of the predominant uh, racism that exists in Asia, I was most definitely not going to be a threat. Nobody thought of me as a threat in anywhere from China to Japan to Korea and Southeast Asia. Brown people in those countries are all just day laborers. So it was really easy for me to to live undercover in those areas. And then my objective was essentially to to befriend uh, wealthy business people, business people that had access into hard target countries Uh, countries that were the most interesting to the United States, so who's developing hypersonic missiles, who's developing the next version of silent, you know, submarine engine, who's developing the next kind of cruise missile or nuclear-tipped warhead that's going to be ocean-launched, whatever it might be, because those are all done by by companies, just like Boeing and Raytheon in the United States do all the weapons development for, for the U.S. government, it's the same way for the Chinas and the North Koreas and the Irans of the world. So my goal was to uh, live in an Asian live an Asian experience find those people and get them to trust me.
0: And as they're getting to trust you you're just gathering as much information and intel as you can on a daily Cur- weekly basis. Yeah, to a
1: certain extent. Uh, that's what it's like at the beginning of a relationship because uh, it's it's very similar to being married. When you, when, you first start to, when you first meet a boy or a girl that you're interested in, it's all very superficial conversation, right? It's not like you're, you're not jumping into bed right away. You're talking about goals and ambitions and where did you grow up and what did you play in high school, et cetera, et cetera. It was the same kind of way with us. It's not until six months or, or three months or nine months later that you're in an intimate relationship. That's that intimate relationship. The equivalent of that in espionage is the place where they're actively giving you the secrets that you're asking for. So I might, in the beginning, I might just show up and say, "Hey, buddy, you know, it's good to see you. Let's go have a, let's go have a beer and talk about what's bothering you at work today." You're not going to get a lot of secrets when people just complain about their boss. Six months later, you go and you meet with the exact same person, and now you're saying, "Hey, last week I asked you to tell me." you know, what are the three critical components that go into a hypersonic missile? Can you, did you get a chance to look those three critical components up so you can tell me what they are? And can you tell me where you source them from? And can you tell me exactly what wattage is too much and what wattage would like fry the circuit board and what wattage is too low and would essentially ruin the navigation system, right? It's a different level of control because the relationship is at a different level of intimacy.
0: And then you're taking the information, you're getting it back to people here on Homeland, I take it. Correct. And, and, then, and then how do we, as a U.S. government, um, you, what do we do with that information at that point, typically?
1: Yeah, when it comes back to the U.S., it goes through a, a number of different processes. So the first thing information does is it goes through a sanitization process, because you never want anyone to know who the officer or who the spy, the asset, the source of the information, you never want anyone in government to know who those people are. Because if there's a mole in government, then you're going to lose your source and you're going to lose your officer. So they sanitize the information so it becomes just raw information, right? Like ones and zeros, kind of really bland, almost like a like an instruction sheet or a recipe. You don't know who wrote the recipe, you just know what the recipe is. So that information gets communicated up to uh, up to certain uh, intelligence community IC partners that know. Uh, or that have an interest in what they can do with that information. So maybe it goes to DOD, maybe it goes to NSA, maybe it goes to FBI, maybe it goes directly to the White House because the president can use it in an upcoming negotiation, or he can use it uh, to to redirect public funds to increase or decrease the speed with which we're creating some new technology, an anti-missile technology, or some sort of satellite capability. But that's, that's how it's used when it comes back. It's put in the hands of people who can make decisions about how to use it to enhance national security.
0: And then once you've gotten the missions accomplished and you've collected the data that you need to and we have all the intel, do you just, just flat out leave that person's life or is it a slow transition out?
1: Yeah, you, you do it one of two different ways. So if the person remains in, in, in a position where they can keep giving useful information, that relationship might last for years. Uh, that relationship might even be so close that you can turn them over to somebody else, right? So, hey, my really good buddy at AT&T Uh, is going to be a great fit for you. He likes the same drinks that you like and he likes the same football that you like and I just got reassigned to go to whatever, Germany. So um, I'll still be back here every two years or so and we can hang out, but I want to make sure that you're connected with my friend before I leave.
0: Ah, interesting. Right,
1: so that's easy to do. But yeah, if the person becomes someone who is no longer in a position where they have access to information or if that person becomes like a lunatic or a crazy person which happens a lot with terrorists you'll just end the relationship sometimes
0: with terrorists you'll end the relationship and then end the terrorist that has to be absolutely incredible riveting were there any times that you that you kind of were like all right they may be on to me i'm fearing my for my life Did that ever happen
1: yeah that that happened uh once uh specifically i can't it's it's uh it's sensitive to talk about um i've actually i'm in the process of writing uh, a book about it um, and I had to take kind of a very measured approach because everything I write has to go through CIA for publication. But there was one time where uh, where I had evidence that I was under active observation by a major Southeast Asian intelligence service. And when I when I raised that up through my chain of command that I was, you know, getting active surveillance, that I felt like I was under active observation, they were able to come back and confirm that it was true. So it was a scary few moments or a scary few days where uh, where I never knew if they were going to burst in the door and take me down or if they were going to keep watching to try to unravel my network in that city. But eventually I was able to to get out of there and and stay safe, kind of beat, beat the uh, cat and mouse game.
0: Wow. <laughs> that had to be uh, uh, quite an experience. Quite. An yeah, ex- I mean, these are invaluable experiences that you – Uh, garnered over the years and so when you're when you've through all those experiences because you've translated it to everyday life and that's what you guys are doing over at everyday spy um, when you meet with these guys and you're getting them to become more comfortable what are some of the things that that tips and tricks that you use to how do you start you know how do you make people more comfortable how do you get their guard down Um, those types of things let's start there
1: yeah, well, the first thing to understand is that, you know, we we make a big deal, especially in today's culture in the United States, that everybody's different. Right, Nate? I'm sure you've heard it. I'm sure you've told your kids that, too. Like, everybody's different. We we emphasize the differences between people. In espionage, the key to espionage is understanding the similarities between people. And one of the biggest similarities that we have that we can use to our advantage that we teach at Everyday Spy is the giant mass of pink like brain matter that exists in everybody's skull. It doesn't matter what color your skin is or whether you graduated high school or whether you have you know a leg that you lost in, in an explosion during guerrilla combat, your brain is like 85% exactly the same as everybody else's brain. So when you understand how to translate the chemistry and the biology of the human brain, you can essentially take control of almost anyone's way of thinking. You can validate them in the right way, you can negate them in the right way, you can incentivize them in the right way to get to build their trust, earn their loyalty, uh, control their decisions, predict and anticipate the outcomes that they'll land on uh, when they use their own forms of logic. You can even teach people how to think, which I'm sure we've all seen through, uh, through media, movies, through faith, through our own upbringing. We were all trained the way that we think. And that means that every single person their brain can be trained to think a certain
0: way. So does that require a, a level of empathy from us where we're able to say, hey, how would I feel in this situation? Oh, I think I would like this, I would like this. I'd like. And do you take that and those kind of thoughts and then say, okay, if I would like this, if I could fall for this potentially, um, then maybe this person can do the same. Is that kind of an approach?
1: Similar, yeah, it's it's very close. The, the main difference is that um, Empathy focuses on you yourself first. Like you're considering someone else and you're considering their experience, but you still run their experience through your own point of view. The more the more tactical approach, the more successful approach is to abandon all of the things that you value, right? Like completely eradicate you from the equation and focus exclusively on that person. Here's Here's this person's experience. This is where they went to school. This was their abusive father. This was how much money that they had, you know they had you know, an, a, a full Christmas tree or an empty Christmas tree, whatever it might be. You actually project yourself into their entire existence and then you ask yourself the same questions. Well, what would incentivize this person to do the thing I'm asking them to do? What would make this person say yes to the question I'm about to ask? What are the trigger words that would make this person say no? Right? You take yourself completely out of the equation because you're irrelevant to them. And this is what's, what's so fascinating is, people are so lost in thinking about themselves that it's actually difficult to think about someone else and abandon your own opinion, your own point of view, your own set of experiences. It doesn't matter if I've gone to college or not. If I'm talking to somebody who has never graduated high school, I have to think about the world through their point of view a point of view of somebody who's never been through any kind of college or or advanced education. If I think about my experience, I'm already too far removed to be able to speak to that person in their own terms.
0: Uh, That's really powerful stuff. And I totally agree with That's what makes it so hard to do. And I think that's where you guys come in because you do have these mental tips and tricks and optimization hacks that you continue to work on with people so that they can get to that place. Cause that's not easy to do for anybody. I don't care how much training you have. We always kind of look introverted. We look at, at ourselves first and then look at the world second. You're saying you got to you got to look at the world first from that other person's eyes, look at yourself second, not even exactly. think about yourself.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, if you want to if you want to win a negotiation, that's how you have to think about it. Don't, don't think about what you're trying to get out of the negotiation, you already know. Try to think what the other person's getting out of the negotiation. How can you sweeten the negotiation so that they're even more with the things that you know that person wants? that you already know what you're trying to get out of the negotiation, so why are you posturing? There's no value in trying to like put up barriers and all this stuff about starting a negotiation from no. I understand the theory behind that, but the practicality is lost because if you start a negotiation with no, then the person who's coming in the door already feels like you're a threat. The way you win a negotiation is by not ever appearing as a threat. The same thing is true in your marketing. If you can market to a person by speaking the words that are in their head, speaking the words that are in their heart, you're going to get them to buy faster. You're going to get them to buy more. You're going to get them to trust your podcast, trust your website, trust your Instagram so much faster than if you use it as a platform to just uh, speak whatever your political opinions are or whatever your opinions about the world are. Uh, It's completely different when you start to leverage – the skills that that espionage teaches you in the everyday life to win more business, win better relationships, uh, make more money. So
0: going back to the negotiation example, let's correlate it to what you've gone through. You're working, you're, you're in a different country, you're building a relationship with somebody, you finally break through, it's going well, he's trusting you more and more and more and information starting to flow similar to a good negotiation, the good negotiation maybe was a little tough at first. Things are flowing. And then all of a sudden, that guy that that you've been pulling data from and pulling intel from somehow just pulls a left turn and and doesn't operate to the same MO one day and kind of throws you for a loop. He's cold, he's he's off. And he's you feel like he's distant. And you so in a negotiation, if the same thing's going true, it's going well, it's going well, things are flowing. And then all of a sudden they throw you a curveball. You're you're rounding third, you're almost at the home plate, you're almost done. They throw you a curveball. How do you handle something like that?
1: Yeah. So a lot of times, the, you have to ask yourself, what's the driving force behind the curveball? And you don't know. the The game in intelligence is all about information, having the informational advantage. When when you're negotiating with somebody, or when you're in the field talking to an asset, and they change suddenly, there's something that has happened. Something has driven that change, and you don't know what it is. So the first thing you have to do is dig into what caused the change. And this is a great example, Nate, because so many people are afraid to ask that direct question in a negotiation, Mm. but it's totally fair to just sit there and say, I get the sense that something has changed, that maybe there's a reprioritization or something has shifted on your side. Can you give me some insight as to what that is? Because when you, when you put a question on somebody that. The pink the pink brain matter that's common to all of us wants to answer the question. It's human instinct to want to to want to bring an open-ended question to closure. So they want to answer it. And if they answer it, you might find out, well yeah, you know, last quarter didn't go quite like we thought it might go. Or, you know, we have other people who are showing interest in the product. Or they might just straight up lie to you because they're just trying to get more money. But the goal is to put them in a position where they have to start answering the questions so that you can have that informational advantage back again.
0: So your recommendation, your position is, don't beat around the bush, address the elephant in the room, address the fact that this person or this group of people has just changed their behavior. Correct. And and just put it back on them and have them explain what's going on.
1: Exactly right, exactly right, man. Because if, again, it's not that different from, from raising kids or having a successful marriage or a relationship. When when your spouse or your child starts to act differently, if you just ask why, why, what has changed? Why are you doing this thing? Right? I, I say it to my kids all the time. My my daughter smacks my son in the face. Why did you smack him in the face? She's got a reason. If you don't ask what the reason is, if you just go off the if you just go off the handle and start saying, "Don't hit your brother. You should never hit your brother," you're losing the learning points. You're losing you're losing the power. But if you ask why. It's forcing them by human nature to answer. And when you force someone to follow human nature, they subconsciously recognize that you are the dominant figure. And if you're the dominant figure and you've had a long lasting relationship with them, it's an alpha It's an alpha pack relationship. They start to say, you're the alpha, you're the dominant. I want to subject myself to you because I can feel in my own body that I want to answer your question. So this must mean that you are a wise and smart person for me to follow. Hmm. All of that happens at a subconscious level at light speed, especially if you've been in negotiations for weeks or months. Now you're at a place where they're they're trying to see, are they in control of the negotiation or are you in control of the negotiation? And when you start being the one that asks questions and then you sit there patiently waiting for them to answer your question, when you ask follow-up questions and counter questions, they can't help but subconsciously land on the fact that they are not the one in control and that they should lean in and trust you because you are such a confident negotiator.
0: That's fantastic advice. I think about that in a real world example with like a guy who's chasing a girl or not chasing, in a relationship, in an evolving relationship. And all of a sudden, again, she gets funny and he's thrown off. Instead of playing the game and dancing around the topic for weeks on end, you're suggesting is saying that's not helping you, man. Address it right away. Yeah. And this person, the the, your, the girl, is natural, even if she has gotten funny. Sometimes just being able to voice your frustrations or something changed this kind of eliminates the the pain or whatever was making you feel funny in the first place. That person. Yeah, it
1: brings exactly. It brings them close. They they're using you as a way to vent this pain point to use to use your words right it's a pain point to them and now they're venting it through you well what happens whenever you look at somebody as a vent or you look at someone as a springboard you trust that person that's why you're giving them that information
0: what are some of the other mental optimization hacks you guys offer there at everyday spy
1: Yeah, we teach people everything from from how to use questions as a way to control conversation, all the way through how you actually can use breathing techniques and how you can control your uh, use, you know, dietary inputs to increase mental sharpness or focus. Uh, We also give people very practical, uh, practical directions, practical skills in negotiating for raises or changing jobs or uh, or even getting you know physical exercise or personal security. We take the full gamut of what CIA taught us to how to control our covert lives. And a covert life is just an everyday life. It's just, you look at it through a different set of goggles. So now we bring that whole different point of view to everybody's everyday life.
0: And the fact that you're always mindful of playing the quote unquote game, for lack of a better term, keeps you one step ahead of the uh, competition
1: correct it keeps us one step ahead of the competition but not just that it does so in a way where our competition doesn't even realize we are the competition right they don't even know they're playing the same game right they think that they're they think that they're uh, already in the dominant position the superior position they think that they've got they've got all the uh, advantages and they don't even realize that we've subjected or subverted into their system and we have we have taken uh, the the dominant role, the alpha. The you alpha mentioned
0: role. The, the optimization hack. One of them was asking questions, building upon question after question, to gain leverage on a situation. Give, give us a little example of how that would work. So it's happening right now, Nate, right? You're, you're the interviewer.
1: Anybody who's ever listened to an interview knows how this works. They just don't realize it. They don't have the vocabulary. They don't have the training to realize it. There's two types of questions. There's open-ended questions and closed-ended questions. Open-ended questions are questions that have, you, you know, the, there's no specific answer. You know, how are you feeling today? There's no specific answer to that question. Why are you a fan of the Denver Broncos? You almost know, anything
0: that's not, sorry Andy, almost anything that's not a yes or no response would be an open-ended question. Correct,
1: exactly. And then a closed-ended question are those one-word answer questions. A yes or no question, right? A, a stop or go question. Mm-hmm. An A or B, some kind of binary answer, right? Is it free? Yes or no. Uh, did you do this? Yes or no. Those, those are closed-ended questions. The problem with a closed-ended question is that you don't get to control the conversation you just ask a closed ended question and then that closes the conversation. But an open-ended question leaves the conversation open for more information. So Nate, you're asking me a lot of open-ended questions. Who's in control of this conversation? Right, absolutely. You are. I am. Exactly, because you're the one asking the questions. If you don't like something I'm talking about, you can steer me back on track just by asking another open-ended question. Mm-hmm. Imagine, imagine using that at work or imagine using that with a client imagine using that in a bank in a negotiation when you ask open-ended questions it forces the person to just ramble on and on and give you more and more information from which you get to define your next open-ended question you can steer the conversation you can direct the conversation you can even lead people to reach a conclusion that you want them to reach just because you understand the information they're sharing and you know how to get them to land in a in a place where they agree with you at the end
0: i think of everything we've talked about in the last 30 minutes plus that's the most powerful piece of advice i've heard so I, far I'm glad, you, could, you could use that in every single day life in every situation exactly
1: yeah that's exactly right
0: that's absolutely beautiful you also have a book uh everyday espionage talk a little bit about that please
1: yeah, my whole business actually started almost by accident. We we were just trying to teach people spy skills because um, when I left CIA, I started working in corporate America and the way I got ahead in corporate America wasn't because I knew anything about corporate America, it was because I started using the spy training that I had received inside my corporate job, using it with clients, using it in you know with customer service people, even using it with my own boss. So uh, after four years of experimenting in my own corporate career, I decided to just take all of those skills and actually document them into a short ebook. And I wrote that ebook. And then I I went and had a a nonprofit partner that I decided I wanted to do a fundraiser for. And I just, I gave a series of lectures about the same topics that were in my ebook. And we raised a bunch of money for their nonprofit. And that is actually what turned into the launching point for our entire business. Because people just wanted more after they got, after they learned how to use it in the workplace, they wanted to learn how to use it every place.
0: That's, uh, that's incredible. And I have uh, sampled some of that ebook. It's very easy to read, so uh, we, you can check it out. Where can people go, Andy? They want to work with you guys. They want to read your book. Where, where can they find you? Yeah, my recommendation,
1: right? I mean, if you want to find me, go to everydayspy.com, whether you're on your phone or whether you're on your computer, everydayspy.com, and you'll land on our homepage. If you're a podcast fan we also have an iTunes, an itunes top 100 podcast called everyday espionage podcast and that's the audio version of us giving all the same teachings we teach in 15 to 20 minute episodes one practical skill at a time uh, and we've had just immense success and fantastic feedback from folks whether they join our newsletter through the website or whether they join our podcast at everyday espionage podcast
0: that's awesome and i'll make sure that we link everything here in the show notes so anyone that's listening that wants to check him out, uh, take a look at the links in the show notes and you can find his podcast, his book, his website, et cetera. Hey, uh, this is really fascinating stuff. I've never had somebody on that was former CIA. And uh, so there's always a first and I'm really happy we got, got a chance to connect. I do want to finish with one final question for you. Since I asked so many open-ended questions, let me ask you one close-ended question.
1: <laughs> you got it.
0: Was this an awesome podcast?
1: Absolutely. This was a great podcast, Nate. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
0: Hey, man, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of the Optimal Life Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe and follow the podcast wherever you're listening. And you could also leave a review. Apple Podcasts, of course, you could leave reviews and ratings. Spotify, you could leave reviews and ratings. And several and many other podcast apps wherever you may be listening. Please tell a friend, tell a family member, let them know about the podcast, and we will see you next time.